The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today we're talking about one of the hottest topics in the security clearance process and that is continuous vetting. It has rolled out across government over the past several years and represents a significant change in assessing the ongoing employee reliability and trustworthiness that is obviously so important within the intelligence community and national security community. To help us navigate this complex topic, Today, we're talking with Brian Dunbar, Director of Security for CACI's National Security and Innovative Solutions Sector. Mr. Dunbar joined CACI in February of 2021 after a 32-year career with the Central Intelligence Agency. That's the last time I talked to him. He was in his role as Assistant Director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. There are so many acronyms, I can't help but stutter a little bit. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining me again to talk about this really important topic. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. It has been a while since we've talked and it's a pleasure chatting with you again today. Well, I appreciate it. Again, there's so much nuance and I feel like we get a ton of questions still, both from kind of the candidate and the employer side on this. And again, the last time I did talk to you was 2020 when ODNI was really just ramping up continuous vetting implementation. Now, I know the policy piece of this has been around for a lot longer, but it really has just been in this past kind of two-year time that we've really seen the national security community fall under that. So a major accomplishment, we consider it kind of the vetting model of the future. I know that's something you spoke to when I talked to you a couple of years ago. Why is continuous vetting so important to how we kind of assess trustworthiness going forward? Yeah, well, as you know, Lindy, continuous evaluation is the key linchpin for the entire personal vetting reform effort and serves as the backbone, if you will, for continuous vetting. When I think of continuous vetting in the U.S. government context, the easiest way to explain it would be to think of CV as CE+. The plus in that definition are various internal information feeds, which exist within individual departments and agencies, as well as some time-based checks on established periodicity schedules. So CV is CE plus additional checks rolled up together. When the government embarked on the Trusted Workforce 2.0 journey in 2018, we began from the premise that automation of the entire enterprise was really the key to success. Figuring out how to move away from outmoded ways that the security vetting enterprise had been doing things for, frankly, decades was critically important. And one of the big questions we asked at that time was, how do you pull and push critical eligibility-related information to departments and agencies in a real-time manner. And so that particular question was at the forefront of the architecture. OD and I had been working on a continuous evaluation IT system and through the work of some really dedicated smart folks, we were able to not only figure out the how you do that, but 
also were able to deploy what I would say is a very complicated IT system. DOD had also been doing some great things, RE, uh, continuous evaluation. So voila, here we are today. The government, you know, as you mentioned, really deserves kudos for the tremendous accomplishment of getting some 4 million cleared individuals enrolled in some aspect of CV, and, and I totally salute them for that. To your question, why is CV and being able to do it important? Well, it moves the enterprise away from periodic reinvestigation, which occurred at five or 10 year marks in the past into a way of doing business where you're able to check on these things on a, on a real-time basis. And obviously that's better. You're able to engage as required on the issues before they become insurmountable and reach critical mass. And that's good from both the protection of national security information standpoint, but also in terms of the ability to intervene favorably with the individual and provide assistance and help before, again, you reach the insurmountable stage where sensitive or classified information is lost, a violation or breach occurs, or, you know, the individual goes off the deep end and must lose their eligibility to sensitive or classified information. And in the private sector, likewise, you know, proactive checks and vetting provide opportunities to engage and resolve issues before they reach a crisis stage. So I think that's what I would say in terms of, you know, CV and, and, and why this world we're in now of actually being able to do that is important. And you just touched on that private sector crossover. And I think that's worth mentioning. That was kind of the topic of a New York Times piece featured a lot of folks that we know in this space that have worked with government and mentioned what the government was doing with its continuous vetting and continuous evaluation program. The title of that was a bit ominous, but I do think the good thing about that article is it correctly highlighted how continuous vetting can be a proactive role in keeping workforces safe. So to the extent that the government has rolled this out, there are absolutely private sector applications. So maybe kind of talk about some of that private sector application in addition to public sector. Why would private companies be as interested in doing some form of this, you know, continuous evaluation or vetting for their employees the way the government is? Yeah, I thought that article was quite balanced and appropriately nuanced with various perspectives. Really good job. There are a number of capabilities out there, you know, some of which were highlighted in that article that can be leveraged by companies if they so choose. It's actually easier in some ways for the private sector versus the government as you're not bound by certain Privacy Act restrictions which apply, you know, in the government trade space. So many of the capabilities have been around for a while and, you know, have been employed in various capacities. And, you know, again, you think folks like LexisNexis, Thomson Reuters, who have been in the business of, you know, gathering public records type information and distributing it for a while. Some really good applications and tools out there, which have utility, frankly, for both the government and the private sector. Hopefully the readers of the article weren't surprised to learn about <laughs> the fact that these kind of capabilities are out there. You know, with the prevalence of social media in today's world, people really need to be aware in terms of the public nature of what they put up there. Many people's lives become 
frankly, very public now through their deliberate actions and activity on social media or other public platforms. I thought one thing which the article highlighted really bears repeating, transparency and openness in communication with employees regarding what goes on in the vetting space is, I think, very important and in many ways critical to employee buy-in, if you will. I know when continuous evaluation was rolling out, the government took great pains to ensure that all impacted individuals were apprised early and often that we were going down this path. And the government also spent a great deal of time explaining how C was automation and modernization thing and not uh, really changing the dynamic about what is examined so far as eligibility to sensitive or classified information. It's uh, simply a different, more modernized way, if you will, to conduct the vetting, which you know has always gone on. And we also pointed out, you know, it's not continuous monitoring, which can take someone into the whole, you know, surveillance state mindset. That's not the case with continuous evaluation. The more you explain things to the impacted employees to assuage concerns, the better. You know, although I've been out of the U.S. government for a couple of years now, I'm not aware of any large scale pushback against the U.S. government CV efforts from impacted individuals. So I think it's the work that was put in up front in explaining it and, and what it is, what it does, that kind of thing was, was really important again for buy-in. And I also think it's critical for folks to know, at least within the US government trade space, that CV provides flags and alerts that merit further examination and investigation. And that sense their leads and, and someone or something, and that can be an individual, that can be a person, an analyst, that could also include the use of things like uh, AI needs to examine, shift, drill down on the flags and alerts to determine you know, the level of seriousness and what sort of intervention and, and mitigation is needed for in success, if you will. Yeah, and I think it's always worth noting, like, I think the key piece about, you know, continuous vetting is saying, hey, if we establish an issue earlier or sooner, there's probably more of a chance for that individual to be able to mitigate that versus if it gets out of control. The issue isn't that if you have a flag come up that you're absolutely going to lose your eligibility or lose your security clearance. It's just saying, hey triggering kind of something when the government saying this is something we need to know about, something you probably should have self-reported already and hopefully are. I think they're trying to educate on that piece too, just to kind of make sure workers understand you still have to self-report the same issues. But I think that's a critical piece. And that's one of the key things that I think they've kind of established through, you know, continuous evaluation and vetting is the aspect that if a flag is noted, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get denied your clearance. And hey, if something is noted, they're catching it sooner than that. That's a data set they're specifically releasing, like how much earlier they're catching issues. Why is that important that they're catching issues before six, 10 years like they would on a periodic reinvestigation? Yeah. So, you know, as we were discussing, you know, a moment ago, the ability to be made aware of issues earlier is truly the main benefit of CE. Rather than let an issue fester, which, you know, could tend to be the situation with the traditional periodic reinvestigation model where 
people are being looked at on, you know, either a five or 10 year periodicity. Early intervention you know, just really is the key to this. From the employee standpoint, it enables the government or, you know, the company in the private sector to engage to mitigate the issue early on, as you said, before the issue becomes a crisis. Oftentimes for the type of issues that might typically come up, like financial hardship, DUI, that kind of thing, the government or the company can get involved with the employee to offer guidance and assistance to help resolve the personal issue. The best way to prevent a catastrophic incident is to intervene proactively before the catastrophe occurs. Getting engaged early and often is the key, and that's the benefit C provides. The Times article referenced Eric Shaw's critical path and that's an important thing for the readers of, of that article as well. Um, that's a great model that Dr. Shaw has developed. And, and CV enables the organization and the enterprise the opportunity to get engaged early on to mitigate behaviors before the individual gets well down the critical path. Good for national security, good for the organization and the private sector, and good for the individual. Good for the private sector, good for the government, good for the individual. I think that's the key message they're trying to get across. And I think for the average applicant, it is, you know what you're kind of signing up for in the security clearance process. It isn't requiring any more additional information from individuals in that process already involves. You know, you're already having credit checks done. You're already having a criminal background check done. This is just saying rather than those systems of record maybe being checked episodically, that they're going to be checked continually. And that's not an issue for the average person. That's a spot on takeaway, Lindy. It's absolutely that. And it is, as you said, we haven't moved into a world where we're doing a lot of things differently in terms of what is being checked. It's just the how at, at a regular a real-time basis. So, you know, I don't know if, that anybody uh, would argue that that's not, you know, a good approach to take for this. Mr. Dunbar, thank you so much for providing your expertise. As always to me, it's always great to find an expert on this process and someone with your kind of track record and history of helping the government handle these solutions and now helping the private sector. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lindy. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about summer travel plans for clearance holders. And Lindy, I don't know about you, but after the last couple of years, boy, I could sure use a vacation. Same, same. Where are we going, Sean? Let's go. <laughs> you know, I think that the timing of this is really good for clearance holders, the timing of this conversation we're having, because there is a tremendous lack of information that I've found in the cleared community about what the requirements are for clearance holders who may be taking international travel. And this is something that actually is a real significant issue in a lot of our cases that we handle where somebody's being disciplined or their clearance is being denied or revoked for failing to comply with rules and regulations. So Lindy, I'm sure you've read it plenty of times and I know that it's not uh, the most exciting reading, but CAD 3, Security Executive Agent Directive 3, the self-reporting guidelines that cover all security clearance holders. 
Has your sense been that most clearance holders are aware that this even exists? No. I mean, I think that most clearance holders do not know that they have self-reporting requirements. I say this as a former clearance holder who never had any clue that I had self-reporting requirements or what they are. I think many people are confused that there are different self-reporting requirements for secret and TS clearance holders. Somewhat nuanced and I think pretty erroneous, but there are. And I think that just goes to show how much... I don't want to require more training of security clearance holders. I love you all. I would never be responsible for that. But I do think that there is this missing piece, you know, read into your program or you have access. There needs to be as much as we're focused on insider threats and, you know, training on kind of emerging issues. We need to kind of go back to the bread and butter of like policies are boring, but the average clearance holder needs to know that. And I think knowing what your agency requires too, because I will get that question at clearance jobs. I have got that like, hey, what is the time frame for when I have to report? And maybe you know the answer to this question, Sean, but my understanding is it's set by the agency heads. And so I generally say, I think I've seen like 30 days, but I don't think that there is one universal across government. How early are you supposed to report foreign travel to the government? And then there is also the caveat knowledge, like if you happen to accidentally travel overseas, which would probably like a day trip to Mexico or, you know, you go to Canada or something happens, the obligation to report it after the the fact, all of those reporting requirements against both self-reporting and reporting on foreign travel, I just don't think people have a good understanding. So I tend to give kind of the guideline versus the rule of like report within 30 days. Definitely be interested in your take, if, especially cases if you've seen someone who's gotten in trouble for this and maybe not reporting within the time frame they were supposed to. Yeah. So, you know, this CAD3 policy is something that really has only been around since I believe 2017 or 2018. I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but it's it's relatively recent. And prior to that, there were some self-reporting obligations for clearance holders, but there wasn't really a government-wide uniform standard. And so every agency had a hodgepodge of requirements and They were poorly communicated, poorly documented, and a lot of times agencies would haul in people and say, you didn't report X, Y, Z. And then we would say, well, show us the policy that requires them to do that. And they would give us this deer in the headlights look and say, well, the person should have known they were you know, supposed to do that, or they should have known we would have wanted to know that. And we would say, well, that's nice. But what you think they would have wanted to know and what they think they wanted to know may, may be completely different things. So this is a subjective standard. And that's not what rules and policies are supposed to be. It's supposed to be an objective, clear standard that everybody can understand. So I think that that's where this uniform CAD3 policy came from was this hodgepodge of varying standards and and lack thereof at some agencies. And so in some respects, that's been a good thing. But on the flip side, as you point out, there's really a lot of clearance holders who don't know that this exists. And I don't think that most of us expect clearance holders and and frankly, most clearance holders would expect other clearance holders to spend their free time perusing dry government websites and the code of federal regulations and things like that. And so most reasonable people would expect that there would be some better efforts to publicize this. But the reality is that has not been the case. For folks who you know still are scratching their heads going, I've never heard of this. What is CAD3? You really ought to go look it up. You can find it easily online. It's put out by ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And I think if 
you know, you go and read this thing and you've never heard of it before, you may be really shocked at what's in there because you as a clearance holder are required to report a lot of things that don't typically get reported. And one of the biggest is travel. There are some specific reporting timelines in CIADRI when it comes to travel. That is the only thing from my recollection that actually does have a specific timeline. And I don't recall offhand exactly what they are, but they are definitely less than 30 days. I I do recall that. And so the government is wanting very prompt, very timely self-reporting of any international travel. And the key thing here that really throws a lot of clearance holders for a loop is you're supposed to do it before you go. You're not supposed to just go travel abroad and come back and tell your security manager, oh, by the way, I spent you know the last week in China. That's not going to fly. Not only that, you're actually supposed to get pre-approval. And you know, technically under the provisions of CI3, uh, an agency can deny that. So if you're a clearance holder and you propose some wild exotic trip to your security folks, they can come back and say, no, we don't think this is safe. We don't think this is consistent with national security. You can't do it. And at that point, your option is either to quit your job or not take the trip. And so that's pretty black and white for most folks. You're also supposed to get a pre-briefing in many cases, a pre-security briefing, You know, sort of outlining the threats that are applicable in the particular country, how aggressive the country's intelligence services at recruiting, things like that. My experience has been that most people have no idea. And we've had cases where somebody has filled out an SF-86, you know, they've undergone their periodic review. They've honestly listed their travel in the last five years on their SF-86. And then security comes to them and says, why is this the first time we're hearing about this? You had an obligation to seek our approval before you went. I think that's probably one of the biggest things in there that folks have kind of uh, been done a disservice by not being sufficiently educated on. It's very interesting that there's these reporting requirements and folks have to report their travel ahead of time. I think it's worth noting, like in general, it is just a precautionary on the part of the government. Like I have rarely seen or maybe never anyone who's presented their travel to their agency ahead of time and been disapproved. I don't think the government in general is interested in who you met on a foreign trip, unless that person is behaving in a strange way. So maybe what are some cautions about interactions overseas? Should security clearance holders take special care in who they get to know when they're traveling overseas? Or there's some advice around that? I agree with you completely. 99% of clearance holder international travel is not going to be a problem if you self-report it. As you point out, Bahamas, Mexico, Western Europe, I mean, Australia, most of the places where people are, you know, typically vacationing overseas are really, you know, benign destinations. They're not going to raise any eyebrows. So I wouldn't let this self-reporting requirement preclude anybody from, you know, living their life and, and going and traveling. That's not what I'm suggesting. But there are some rare cases, some some offbeat destinations you know, the government might have an issue. And for example, China, Russia, Iran, certain parts of the Middle East, obviously, you know, Cuba is a no-go and there's a whole other set of issues that that raises. And so any of these type of destinations are probably going to get some additional scrutiny. But as long as you're staying on the well-worn path or maybe just straying off of it ever so slightly, probably not going to be an issue. One other thing I want to point out as well is travel self-reporting and pre-authorization requirement applies to 
everybody, all clearance holders. And so, you know, it really doesn't matter what your level of clearance is. This is something that you need to be taking into consideration. On to your your other question, your other point about, you know, kind of interacting with people overseas. This is a question I get all the time. I think that it's really important that people understand there is actually a difference between what is required in self-reporting foreign contacts under CAD 3 versus what is required in self-reporting contacts on the SF-86. If you read the language on the SF-86 that talks about who qualifies as a reportable foreign contact, it talks about the close and or continuing contacts. That's the language that I think you know most of us who have held clearances are familiar with. That language also appears in CAD 3. But in addition to that, it also talks about the requirement to self-report any foreign contacts with whom you've exchanged personal information. Now, that's a very vague, broad term. What constitutes personal information? Up until last year, we didn't have an answer about that, and it was really up for interpretation. DOD has since put out supplemental guidance that for the first time defines what that means. And what they have essentially said is, you know, anything that is not publicly known So, for example, if you go overseas, you meet somebody, you wind up spilling your entire life to them for some reason, it maybe becomes a romantic situation, something like that, that obviously would be reportable. If you, you know, go overseas and you get into a cab and the cab driver presumably is a foreign national, obviously that sort of contact isn't reportable. You know, a server at a restaurant, uh, somebody you have fleeting interaction with at a hotel, you know, staff, those sorts of situations. The government is not looking for you to report all those people. And that would be so impractical anyway that it's, it's just not, you know, realistic. If you're exchanging personal information, information that is not generally known about you. And, you know, that could arguably include even certain, you know, contact information. That's then triggering the reporting requirement under CAD 3, which is different and broader than what's required on the SF-86. So that tension between the two documents is something that has caused a lot of questions for people and some real anxiety. And so it's still something that you know, we're seeing percolate in cases occasionally. As a general rule, you know, it's not something that I would lose sleep over. I think as long as folks read this document, understand what their reporting obligations are and make a good faith effort to comply with them, that's really what the government is typically looking for here. What happens in Cancun stays in Cancun, unless you have a security clearance, and then it does not stay in Cancun. You must ask your security officer first. I think that is like, it's good. I, I love that feedback on the new ones because I have heard that before about the difference between what the self-reporting requirements are and what's on the SF-86. Just a reminder, you know, it's certainly, we kind of all let loose a little bit on vacation. I think it is a good reminder, like, hey, please go on a vacation for me this summer. I'm not going on one. So security clearance holder, go on one. If you certainly have the, you know, the privilege of being able to travel abroad, just be a little bit careful and cognizant of who you connect with or talk to. And that advice of just, you know, not sharing things that aren't publicly known. I think having that clarification is just good to know. You know, you don't need to share personal details because as we know, if there are foreign adversaries out there looking to gather information on folks, it's some of those personal details that they'll certainly use to build their campaigns. You know, anything that can be used to target you or research you and locate you. I mean, those those are all things that you know, you just want to be prudent and careful about. And, and you know, a lot of common sense and reasonableness goes a long way here. So nobody's expecting, I think, you know, your average run-of-the-mill clearance holder to be a counterintelligence expert or anything like that. But 
using your head is, is kind of what we typically recommend. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.